welcome to the Work Design Podcast. Listen to the world's greatest leaders share their stories and secrets on how they designed and built the best places to work. We'll shine a light on the challenges and breakthroughs of designing org charts, optimizing teams, and building jobs that people love. This is for modern leaders who are building the best teams at scale. Let's make work work better. Today, our guest is Marcus Tan, the co-founder and CEO at Health Engine, a uh, marketplace for specialist and doctor appointments here in Western Australia that's pushing out to be a platform for uh, so much more. Marcus, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, Health Engine, where you guys are at now. Yeah, thanks, Tim uh, and Damien. We're, uh, as I said, a tech company based in Western Australia. We've largely been a venture-backed startup, so have been very lucky to attract some pretty uh, high-profile investors that uh, have allowed us to grow very, very quickly. So uh, as you said, we're, we're basically a marketplace that helps people find and book their health appointments online. And you know, we've been fortunate enough to be able to grow a, a market-leading national business out of Perth, which is generally seen as a not exactly a technology yeah. hub yeah. Um, in Australia. I'm a doctor by background, so I've no business running a tech company <laughs> whatsoever, but I guess I'm the domain expert trying to solve a problem that I had many, many years ago um, using tech. Um, and I've been very fortunate to be able to build a team around me. Um, and at you know various times, the team has been you know sort of north of 150 odd people, and um, we're currently sitting around about 110. Marcus, tell us about the start of that journey. How many people were in the original team when you? came on board what did it all look like when when the journey started yeah so for me it was um, because I'm, I'm not technical I, I can't code to save my life I had two developers that I brought on to try to solve this problem of just navigating the healthcare system with good information you know, I was actually mm-hmm. looking to try and find doctors as a, as a doctor I'm here to try and help patients navigate the healthcare system as a GP and referring them to specialists was one of my roles and we didn't have good resources at the time to do that so I was looking to build effectively that and needed to find the people who could code and so brought on two tech co-founders if you like uh, into my lounge room at the time and <laughs> that was the beginning of our story. And then how did um, how did things grow from there? Well, well as I said I mean you know we sort of muddled around for a little while trying to find product market fit um, at the point where we were getting sort of you know hundreds of thousands of people actually using the site a month um, you know we could see that we were getting traction but we weren't always immediately able to see where we were going to monetize um, the health market at the time what weren't necessarily looking for marketing tools because they were usually quite busy and so you know paying pain to try and attract new patients wasn't really a thing um, but we knew that there was people getting value from it. So we were trying to unlock a business model at a point where we pivoted somewhat from just being a directory, which is kind of, you know, help people find things to a appointment, um, you know, appointment booking service where people could actually transact. That really kind of changed the business significantly. And it was around that time that we actually secured our first angel investor as well. And uh, that helped us sort of develop the tech, the tech and develop, you know, sort of the market a little bit into online bookings, which was the thing that we kind of pioneered in Australia. We're currently taking around about 1.1 million bookings a month, you know, back in 2011, 12, which is when we kind of launched that service. It just didn't exist really in healthcare. So, so really in many ways, we're very uh, proud of that particular achievement. Um, and I guess um, that allowed us to sort of go to millions of users a month, and you know, and and that's um, you know that that helped us also attract other money, um, particularly um, venture capital sort of money, sort of more institutional money, 
and really, I guess that's just kind of fueled the fire to grow more, you know, get more users. And obviously, as you get more users, you want to build more product and you build more product, you need more engineers and you need more engineers. You also, you know, need product guys. And then, you know, as you build more of these products, you need to sell them and you get more salespeople. And so it becomes this round of, you know, of as you grow, you need more and more of different types of functions and skills. And in many ways, um, when you don't have money, you don't have you sort of attract the sort of skills that you deserve, if you kind of get what I'm saying. Um, so we had, you know, some um, very passionate people who weren't necessarily particularly skilled, including myself, doing sales and other things. Yeah. Um, yeah. But as you attract more capital, you can actually afford to buy professional level help. And that's, you know, what we end up doing. And it probably at that stage, started to outgrow your living room a little bit. Oh, 100%. Yeah. No, my, my wife was annoyed enough to have, <laughs> to have all these strangers in, in our living room long enough that they kicked us, she kicked us off, out after about six months. Um, she couldn't handle it anymore. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we've evolved into several office spaces as we've grown. And, and that's been a challenge in of itself, right? Because, you know, when you're a fast-growing business, um, trying to predict what your office requirements are from, you know, a, one lease to the next, you don't really want to be signing on large leases, but by the same token, you want to provide some level of certainty for your team and stuff like that. So, yeah, that, that's certainly been one of the challenges of growing. Now, one of the things we focus on for the podcast and fascinates me and Damien is, is this concept of work design or being intentional and in how you start going through that motion of adding other functions into the organization and particularly as CEO and the senior leadership team, how you structure them. We kind of divide them into a couple of kind of areas to talk about one's organizational design how do you structure the organization uh how do you um structure the teams within the organization how do you optimize a team and then at the individual level how does that all cascade down to provide clarity for the 100 and 110 people that you've got working at health engine mm-hmm. um as you've gone through that scale um what do you feel like starts to break for you and cause pain for for you and the team and how have you thought about those different dimensions of building out the organization yep so i mean to say that we designed work um certainly as a startup is a is a complete fallacy right like i mean it just happens um where i think when you're small and you start with a few people it's it's relatively easy in the sense that there are you you do what is required you know like so you know at the beginning as the ceo you know, it's a fancy title, but you end up doing the books, you end up doing like sales, you end up doing like, you know, as um, the admin, you do all the sort of the, the, the stuff that you wouldn't ordinarily attribute to most CEOs, like, you know, because you just have to. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the proverbial cook, cleaner and bottle washer and everything <laughs> else, like, you know, um, your front of house, back of house, you're doing everything. Um, but of course, as you get more capacity or, you know, um, sort of um, funds to have people come in to start divvying out more of that work and delegating more of that work, um, it becomes more of a, um, I guess, more design in the sense that it's more of a structure. But, you know, in the early days, it, there wasn't much design or structure around it. It was just all hands on deck. You, you know, whatever needed to get done, got done, right? Um, and certainly, I think um, part of the reason I think why we're a little bit smaller than the 150 where we were sort of at the peak of um, of our headcount was this this whole Dunbar number thing, like, you know, being around about 150 yeah. is a real thing because certainly as you have more and more people in the organisation, complexity becomes hugely um, um, well, becomes huge, right? So trying to ensure that people are aligned and, you know, clear about what they're doing um, and also, I guess, not having so much overlap in terms of um, just redundancy of people, you know, it's a bumping into each other, doing the same things or like whatever, that becomes a real problem. Whereas if it's just three of us, you know, sort of in the living room, 
we can say, hey, look, I'm going to be calling so-and-so, you're going to be coding and you're going to be designing. And that's it's a very clear delineation. It's very easy. Whereas communication, when it becomes with more, more, more and more people, it becomes much more more uncertain or less clear about what everybody's doing. Can you give some examples, a bit, a bit of a, some sort of more concrete examples of around 150 staff, what you saw happening, um, which was painful to you or to the organisation? Uh, look, I mean, it became very clear that we were sometimes because that, because we were quite well funded at the time. So you know, and you know, to some extent, pretty pretty. You know, some people would say still are, but I think you know, when you're so there's an expectation you grow really, really quickly. You tend to solve problems by throwing money at it. Yeah. For better or for worse, that's just what tends to happen. And you tend to say, hey, look, I need to get all these things done. Let's just hire a whole bunch of people to get it done. Um, and because there's generally a shortage of engineers. Building automated systems to try and reduce the headcount is not the first place you go because you've got to try and work out what exactly it is that you want to automate. And so you need to have processes and people run through it. So in many ways, having the people hired to do a whole bunch of things that you want to do to grow was a is exactly what I just said, right? Like it depended on what we needed at the time. And if sales was the thing because we did have a basis of a product, then we just need to sell and sell like crazy. Okay, so like how do we scale a sales team? Yeah. And at that point, you know, it was like, um, who are the best salespeople we know? And, you know, like you, you tend to go to your existing networks because you don't, nobody loves using recruiters, but sometimes that's what you have to do if you want to scale, then you have to pay a lot of money for that. And then, you know, it's about finding the people who have a cultural fit, which isn't always easy when you haven't got a lot of choice. And then like, you know, the people with the requisite experience and but being able to sort of line all those things up, sometimes you don't, it's not as neat as that when you just need a whole bunch of people in seats. And, yeah. and so you end up making a lot of mistakes because you hire the wrong people and, you know, and, and being a startup because you're constantly looking at your processes anyway and they're all experiments because they just mm-hmm. don't exist. You don't know whether it's the people who are screwing up the processes or it's the processes that you put in place that weren't working and it, it just creates a lot of complexity. It just shows up as that. And there are many times where I actually found that I felt it was really wasteful because there were times I was sitting in the office going, what does that person do? Yeah. I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm sure, I mean, we're not, you know, terrible people. Like, I'm sure they do something. They look busy, but I'm not actually sure what they actually produce for us. And I think it's very easy to get up in that mode where you kind of feel, oh, God, like, you know, wh- why have we got so many people, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And it so- sounds like your thinking's changed about that. So that there was a change in thinking from um, let's throw people at the problem to now let's think about this a little bit differently. Can you tell us about how that thinking shifted and what, and what you saw at that time? Yeah, I think it's also an evolution of the of, of the business, right? So as time has gone on, um, you know, we've been very fortunate to have built up a quite a large user base. So you know, traction has been something that we've been able to get. Um, and it's at, at those times, you sort of go, well, look, okay, now that we've got, to, you know, Tim sort of mentioned it, we've got this platform. What can, what else can we do? And then once you've actually evolved from selling and marketing to building product to add more value to the people that we've already got, it changes the focus in terms of the functional emphasis in the business yeah. so you go from being maybe sales and marketing led to being more product and engineering led and then therefore you know you have to now change the skill set mix and reduce down one and and start investing in the other um so you know in that sense it becomes different and I, and i guess to the extent that we're you know we've also gone from a high growth high burn type of you know thinking to a more sustainable burn like you know less headcount type of environment because head, heads are expensive especially in australia um, you know, and certain the, the types of heads that we're talking about, both in sales and in product and engineering, they're expensive heads generally. So it's mm-hmm. not like, you know, you can, um, you know, it's noticeable when you hire people. So I think that you've got to be much more judicious about the way that you hire now, in, you know, again, depending on the face of your business and um, whether they're pure revenue accretive, value accretive type of heads that you're hiring or 
it's nice to have admin, you know, that makes your life a little bit easier, but it isn't necessarily creating any immediate value to your customers or to the company, if you kind of get what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 And so there was, it sounds like there's a transition there from, from that um, scale people to the point that you transitioned and um, sized your organization a little bit smaller. Um, tell us about that transition. How did that affect the organization around you and um, how, did, how long did that transition take? Yeah, so I mean, you know, I'm I'm a big believer in um, you know the concept of the sigmoid curve, where you know basically you 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 go up and you're scaling, you're growing quite quickly, but in order to hit the next peak, you've got to actually kind of you know sort of take stock, you know, sort of pair back a little bit, and you know before you can go back up again. So in many ways, you know, the business has sort of reflected that same sort of theory, the sigmoid type of theory, um, and and really, I guess. Uh, you know, for us, I think it was really just to say that, you know, again, it reflects the transitions, you know, in terms of um, um, the pivots that we've made around um, core focus and other things, um, the life cycle of the business. Um, but, um, you know, the changes have been painful, right? I mean, like, you know, when you grow a business that isn't, it's not huge. I mean, 150 people is not a lot of people in the whole scheme of things. I mean, a lot of corporates, this is a small division in their, in their you know, multi-departmental sort of org structure. Um, but, it's family, right? I mean, as a startup, it's very personal. You bring people on, and they're, you know, you're you're sort of, um, you know, selling them on the dream of joining you on this rocket ship, and you know, and they love it, and you know, you 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 um you know, you've kind of um, responsible for their livelihoods, and the minute you've got to let people go or change tack or make sure that like you know you re reassess the types of skills, they're not even bad people. It's just that they're not the right fit for what you need right now. How do you have those conversations? And they're tough conversations to have. Um, you know, people join the rocket ship because they want to solve a problem, and now they don't feel like they're needed anymore. It, it's a, it's a it's a painful conversation. They feel like family. You feel Very like painful. you're gonna yeah. So, so you know, they're, they're never easy conversations to have. Um, I think some people have gotten so accustomed to doing those sorts of things that it's um, you know uh, they're numb to it all. But I, it's just you know having had to do it a few times now, like it's just never easier. Um, but um, you do get better at it in terms of how the process works and all that sort of stuff, but it never feels easier. Um, and, um, you know, I think at some level, you have to almost kind of give people an expectation that high growth, high change sort of businesses like startups are, you expect it, right? Like, you know, I mean, um, you know, people do need to understand life cycles of businesses in order to sort of understand it's not personal, it actually is what's best for the business. Mm. Could you tell us about your your process for designing those sorts of changes? So, the things that happen in your in your head and in your office and in your in your boardroom before you um, before you go out and start um, making changes in an organization. Um, I'd like to I'd like to think that it was more process driven and uh, and not as ad hoc as it as it can be. But you know, I mean, to to the extent that we get information that's new and we try to enact on it as quickly as possible, um, sometimes it can feel very unplanned. Like, you know, it's just a big rush to get it done rather than, oh, well, you know, we saw this coming. Um, because new information happens all the time, whether it's a, you know, um, change in market conditions or, um, you know, virus hits or something, you know, some, some, something or other changes the mar market. And, you know, a competitor comes in with a new product or something, um, you know, a, a customer's not happy and, you know, leaves or whatever. Like, you know, there's a whole bunch of these, um, you know, things that, in a challenge or an opportunity makes you have to reassess the business. And that's, I guess, the nature of startup. Um, as you guys would be aware. And I think planning is a nice thing to have. Um, it just doesn't seem to always happen that way. And certainly for us, that's been the case. I mean, you know, we, we go, look, this is the budget and the forecast and this is what we're working towards. This is how we think about our business. A quarter later, 
it's completely different, right? Like, you know, um, you know, this is the opportunity we want to go for now. Our priorities have changed. Um, we've tended to try and work on quarters rather than try to sort of pivot too much. I mean, you know, I know sometimes people go a quarter, that's not very much at all. But, you know, for us it, it is because we used to go for month to month. Um, but trying to create some level of stability and ensuring that everybody's aligned. So we've done that through things like OKRs, um, whether it's an annual OKR that says, look, we're trying to achieve this more broadly over the year and then chunk it down over quarters. Um, and then re keep reassessing at a quarter level as to whether we're still heading in the right direction, whether, in fact, those annual OKRs are still relevant, all that sort of stuff. That's a very useful alignment tool around goals that we want to achieve as a business. Um, and then, of course, people then can cascade that to their own personal OKRs to make sure that, you know, that whatever they're doing is contributing to that overall goal. These are all part and parcel of, you know, some of the things that we put in place. Yeah. Now, in, um, at, at Health Engine, I know a lot of companies would have some kind of document that, communicates an individual's um, personal responsibilities to the organisation, like a job description or a personal responsibilities or position responsibilities. How do you deal with that at Health Engine? Do you call it a job description? And how have you personally found that process when you're going through hiring a new role in the executive team or hiring someone in the organisation? Um, yeah, so we don't call it a job description. We call it a gig guide. Um, it's just a colloquialism, I think, that's uh, specific to Australia. I'm not sure if anybody else calls it that anywhere else in the world, but that's, uh, but that's certainly what we call it. Um, and look, it's, it's, a pretty, um, it's a pretty loose sort of document in the sense that, you know, things get added, things get, you know, um, sort of changed and, and, and amended, um, you know, um, in that sense, um, depending on, again, you know, we want to sometimes preserve... Um, Sure, it's, it's a role-based thing, but it's also, you know, we try to accommodate the person to that so that, you know, if the role does change somewhat, we can kind of accommodate the person so that they can continue in the business as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, our philosophy has always been that if we can redeploy talent within our business, we should. Um, and, um, you know, we, we sometimes try to be a bit flexible around the roles that are available in the business to do that. Um, it's not always ideal because, as I said, you can sometimes artificially end up causing problems by reduplicating other roles elsewhere and, you know, functions um, overlap and so on. So, um, so rather than sticking to the, the role exactly as it's documented, you'd customise a, a role specifically to fit the right people? It, it, it can sometimes feel that way, um, but we do do that reluctantly only because it can create problems. Um, you know, sometimes it's better just to understand where the roles are within an org chart and these are, you know, it's much easier to carve those things out than try to be too malleable around it. Yeah. Uh, because it has unintended knock-on effects on, you know, how, as I said, it can bump into other roles and other things. Um, where it actually becomes sort of, uh, you know, for us, kind of where the rubber hits the road, I think, for gig guides isn't so much that we go back to the gig guide every quarter or every month. Um, we actually have a, um, a thing um, called a one-page accountability. And what that really is, it's kind of a reflection on what does the line manager want to see out of the quarter from you? Right. Forgetting about your gig guide and everything else, what can we talk about as a shared understanding of what you're accountable for delivering within the quarter? And, you know, it's a it's a dialogue like everything else. And once you've documented it, it forms the basis of a performance you know, review that says, hey, look, you know, did you manage to get through um, what you said you were going to do? And if you didn't, well, let's talk about the inputs and how why why you didn't. Uh, and there are very good reasons why you didn't. Um, but at least it's a it's a base document of a shared understanding that goes beyond the gig guide. The gig guide is just high level, you know, BAU sort of stuff, just talking about your role, but not necessarily what you're looking to achieve. If you kind of get what I'm saying, um, and I think that's um, those are the sort of two. Doc I mean, of course, people have their OKRs and other things, but um, the two documents specific to a role is that. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so, if you if you think to a time when you've had to to make the decision to hire, 
Um, <clears throat> obviously, that can be very expensive if the hire if the hire goes wrong. How do you think about maximizing um, sort of maximizing the hiring process and getting the most the, the right person and, and minimizing the chances of, of problems? Yeah. So look, I, I don't think every you know any system is one hundred percent foolproof. Um, I think at the point in time, even if you think that they're one hundred percent a right fit and you know it's it's perfect, people's circumstances change, and you know for one reason or another, they may or not perform right in the role. So um, you know. I think um, you know there's no 100% perfect um, system, but what we do is we actually go through quite an exhaustive sort of recruitment process. So it's multi-staged, um, you know, where you have a technical. Inter- well, I mean, obviously you apply for whatever role and usually submit your CV and, and what else not. Um, in some of the engineering type of roles, you actually have to sit um, a hacker rank test and you know all these sorts of things that just demonstrates that you can how you think about problems and you know um, and have sufficient level of competency I guess, I guess in a certain role like engineering, um, which is very problem problem solving based. Um, and then you'd go through a um, you know a more technical interview, a, a proper face to face interview rather than just sitting in front of your computer and and, and filling out a, a couple of um, tests um, to see whether you can talk through stuff. And then you might sit through a culture fit interview, which is a whole separate panel of people who you'd go and talk to. And sometimes it's on the same day, but often it's multi-dayed. Um, and then I try to, if possible, meet every single person that joins the business before they join the business. And yet wow. usually I talk to them about the fact that I'm not the expert here. I'm not the hiring manager usually. And so I'm not there to assess whether you can do the job or whether even in fact you're the right fit. I'm actually there to make sure that A, you get the signal that A, um, the um, you know the business cares about you as an individual and that you know enough for the ceo to want to get involved and so we're a very flat structure and we want to make sure that you feel that the ceo is approachable all the way through to all your managers but the ceo is approachable and that if you have ideas and other things the, the ice is already broken you don't have to worry about wandering through the corridors going oh god that's the ceo should i talk to them you know that that doesn't happen they already know who i am and it's and that's an easy part but actually more specifically it's about really giving them the you know eyes wide open on joining a startup because startups are just a weird thing. Like most people haven't worked in one. They might have worked in large corporate and have completely the wrong view of how to think about stuff in startup. And so really just giving them a sense of, look, you know, it's a roller coaster you're joining. And even at the point where you love roller coasters, and a lot of people do, it still can be very, you know, hair raising and not, you know, <laughs> stomach in your mouth sort of moments because you change a lot and there's a lot of cha- um, lot of things that are very uncertain and you've got to roll the punches and it's just a yeah. different it's just a different environment and so you've got to just kind of come in knowing that that's what you're buying yourself into um and so so long as people are very well aware of that that's what i'm trying to extract so you know it's a very long process and some people love it actually when they come in they'll often say that that's a process that they really enjoy yeah um, and the people who don't survive the process i never kind of get it's a survivor <laughs> bias sort of problem yeah yeah, yeah. What? Well, that's a, that's a massive commitment as a CEO to, to interview every person or, or speak to every person. Can, can you think of a time when that's really paid back, where that, that investment has um, really shown its worth? Um, look, I mean, I'd like to think that it pays back every day only because, like as I said, if it makes, if it makes the business feel less hierarchical and more flat um, yeah. and it gives people the opportunity to... Um, to engage with you, like people tend to be more real. They tend to, you know, they, they treat you as a as a person rather than as your as the boss or whatever it is, and and they just tend to become more transparent, like you know, in their communications yeah. and other things. Um, I, I think that's a um, a really important part of the culture is that we're just all about being real, like you're authentic. I mean, let's let's not ignore the fact that there are problems and challenges, but we're here to solve problems. And you can't solve problems if you don't acknowledge that there is a problem, if you know what I mean. So, like, you know, we want that sort of culture, and I think that's um, that's a that's a really good way to start. Um, 
but um, you know, look, I, I, I like it as a form of talent identification, actually. So you know, I really get a good feel for some of the best interviews I've had with people. I kind of go, that person is going to go far. I really want to, you know, ensure that they have a really good experience of the business because I get the sense that they can be a real superstar for the business. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of thing. So being able to just see, wow, okay, cool. We, we, you know, love love that guy or girl. You know, like uh, that's uh, yeah, it's been it, that's that's paid off. Yeah, it really helps. What you're saying is helps both shape the business, but also keep you connected and keep everyone else connected as well. Frank Lama's Functional Five. We uh, have Frank's Functional Five, which is uh, five rapid fire questions. Frank is just here sitting beside you. Yeah, we we do have Frank, (laughs) uh, a prolific online influencer for us um, across uh, across the world. Um, Damien, question one. So question one of Frank's functional five, what do you need to be functional? What do I need to be functional? Oh, goodness. Um, I, I think it'd have to be um, my wife because like uh, she does so much of the stuff behind the scenes for me that if I didn't have her, like I'd just be completely non-functional. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good, very good. Now, as far as it relates to work design, um, who would you like to hear from? Who would you like to hear interviewed in a, from another company? Oh, gee. Um, you know, I, I think um, I, I look. I, I've like I've, I've loved LinkedIn as a as a business, and um, I, I use LinkedIn all the time. And and um, these guys are technically the people who are all about you know role jobs and employment and you know opportunities for people. I'd love to be able to hear from like you know the, the people associated with LinkedIn, whether it's um, you know the CEO or whether it's um, you know the people in their um, people and culture team as to how they think about these exact sort of issues. Yeah, awesome. You've um, you've mentioned a couple today. Um, can you think of what's your favourite shortcut or hack to designing a good workplace? Oh goodness! Um, I look. I think for me, it has been the um, uh, one-page accountability. Um, you know, just being able to really clearly have that one thing that you can refer to all the time, like rather than having multiple, you know, um, documents. That's that's the thing that's been a hack for us. Yeah. Out of interest, where do you store that? Google Drive. Okay, no, that's okay. Uh, Google, thank you. Thank you for uh, pushing Drive together. Uh, awesome. Um, knowing what you know now, building a company to 100 and had to do it all again, what would you try and tackle first and get ahead of ahead of what you've now experienced? Um, look, I think for us, it has been some of the more alignment type of tools. So, you know, I think, you know, when you're fast growing, there are opportunities everywhere. It's very easy to just get distracted by trying to pursue everything and everything, anything and everything. Um, for us being able to sort of have a, you know, sort of look, uh, we talk about it as the podium, like in, in the business, just being able to align people around three things, not 30 things, which is where we've historically been and trying to, uh, you know, sort of bake that into all of our processes so that, you know, it lines up with our OKRs and other things like, you know, I think that's, that's the, the focus thing. It fo- focus really is a thing. The magic number of three. <clears throat> and the, the final fifth, Frank's final functional fifth oh my goodness the fifth question (laughs) what's the most valuable resource or asset you can share with our listeners oh wow um look i have to admit that uh the resource that i'm using a lot of at the moment and that um actually that's helping me and to some extent it's a bit like the alignment tools i was talking about is trello so um the, the ability just to store virtually everything 
in my life on Trello, uh, whether it's a, the CEO business related thing or even I've introduced it at home now. So my wife uses Trello. Trello. It's awesome. <laughs> like, you know, just being able to track where everything's going and whether things, you know, things are on, um, you know, um, on track for completion and stuff like that. It's actually pretty cool. Like, you know, that I know it sounds really lame, but like I've never actually had that level of organization before. So like being able to coordinate that amongst lots of different people is actually pretty important. Wow. Great. Awesome. Oh, well, look, um, thanks, Marcus, for joining us. Uh, we loved hearing a bit more about Health Engine, your growth journey. Just recapping, Health Engine, 110 people uh, built in Perth, Australia, but servicing the whole of Australia, doing over 1.1 million doctor's appointments a month uh, and scaling uh, with uh, big investors like Sequoia. Um Marcus, thank you so much for coming along. We loved having you on the show. Damien, again, thank you, uh, th- Tim. thanks for having me here. And we look forward to uh, introducing you to our uh, next guest soon. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks. Thanks for joining Tim and Damien, co-founders of Functionally, on their quest to make work work better. If this episode has given you value, please share this with another leader. And don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe now to make sure you're among the first to listen to the next episode of the Work Design Podcast. For more about the latest in global work design trends, head to Functionally.com and sign up for our monthly work design publication.